the divine arrangement where God purposed the redemption of men, and Jesus said, I will go, I will obey the Father, I will take this commandment of the Father, and I will suffer in the place of his people. And for that, the Lord Jesus died on the cross as a priest. Priest? You mean that? You're a Protestant? You're a free Presbyterian, and you're talking about a priest? Yes, because the Bible is full of priestly work. Welcome to Let the Bible Speak, and today we go straight to our message on Jesus as our High Priest. Yes, the priest of the New Testament, the one and only priest whose work is irreversible and whose office is irreplaceable. And so we invite you to stay tuned with us as we come to the pulpit ministry of our church here in Cloverdale as we let the Bible speak on Jesus our high priest. We've been reading here about very saddened men, men that were troubled about the future, men that were filled with despair. And the thing that answered their despair, the thing that turned the corner for them was the Lord coming alongside, giving them an exposition of the cross. The Lord began to speak to them saying, oh fools and slow of heart to believe that Christ ought to suffer and to rise again. This was the very thing that was supposed to happen. This was not the end of Christianity. This was the substance and the very essence of it. And he took them back into all the scriptures. And the formula here of uh, Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, those three sections mean the 39 books of the Old Testament. And Christ took them right through many of those scriptures of the Old Testament, pointed out that it was needful, and there was a divine purpose in the cross, in his death, and his sufferings upon that cross. And the thing that they needed, and the thing that brought about the heartburn, and the excitement, and the joy of it all, was a comprehension of the cross work of the Lord Jesus. Like many in this world, there are people who call themselves Christians, go to Christian churches. They might even carry a symbol of a Christian cross. They may even have the jewelry and trinkets of a cross, but they have no idea of what Jesus accomplished when he died on that very tree. People need the Lord to come alongside, take off the blind eyes, make them to see the wonder of it all, and to explain to them that this is the wondrous plan of God from all eternity. For that very reason, Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb. For that reason, he lived all those years, 30 years. For this, he planned and set himself to go to Jerusalem that he would, in the will of God, suffer on that very cross. And the very first thing that you and every worshiper needs to know is that Jesus died on that cross in the very will of God. He led down his life at the command of the Father. Now, there is a very good scripture for that. 
John 10, 17 uh, and 18, where we see this divine purpose. We see the deliberate nature of uh, the Lord dying on that cross. And we're told here in John 10, 17, 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. Now notice this last statement, verse 18. This commandment have I received of my Father. And that is the covenant of grace. That is the divine covenant between Father and Son. That is the Trinitarian covenant, the divine arrangement where God purposed the redemption of men, and Jesus said, I will go, I will obey the Father, I will take this commandment of the Father, and I will suffer in the place of his people. And for that, the Lord Jesus died on the cross as a priest. Priest? You mean that? You're a Protestant? You're a free Presbyterian, and you're talking about a priest? Yes. Because the Bible is full of priestly work. You can't read the book of Leviticus. You can't read of the tabernacle and the temple without being introduced to those men dressed in white with uh, their priestly rule of slaying the sacrifices, burning at the altar, carrying the blood into the presence of God. That was priestly work. And think about this. Through those types, tabernacle and earthly priests of the Old Testament, God, for 4,000 years, was preparing the world to understand that his son would die as a priest and that his work would be priestly work. Now, let's go to the book of Hebrews and look at a few texts that refer to our Lord Jesus as a priest. And I want you to think of the book of Hebrews as the exposition of the cross, the explanation of how and why and for what purpose the Lord Jesus laid down his life on the cross at Calvary and fulfilled his work as a priest. Let's go to Hebrews 2 and verse 17. Hebrews 2, 17. First thing to establish here is that Jesus is called a priest. He is referred to as our priest. And it says here, Wherefore in all things it becometh him to be made like unto his brethren, that's his human nature, his incarnation, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So he is the head of all priests. He represents what was in the Old Testament, the one who went into the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement and made atonement for all the nation. And here now is Jesus, our Lord Jesus, our Savior. And he is referred to here in this doctrinal explanation as our high priest. Then Hebrews 4 and verse 14, it says, Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. And so we come today as Christians 
to remember our Lord Jesus and to think of him as a priest. And the Bible clearly off, uh, explains that he fulfills that office. The work of a priest was an office to be fulfilled, a position, a worker's role, the office of priest. And in the history of Israel, there were thousands and millions of animal sacrifices. Think of the, the day of dedication of Solomon's temple, so great with the number of sacrifices that they could not be numbered. The blood flowed, and the Lord Jesus now is the fulfillment, the priest of the covenant. He is the one who came into the world to fulfill this work of sacrifice. So, when you think of priest, you have to think of sacrifice. The work of our Lord Jesus was to die, to offer up himself as a blood-atoning sacrifice. You can never divorce priests from sacrificing. If there's no sacrifice, they have no work to do. They can't do their work. They need a sacrifice to slay the animal, have the sins of the uh, confessing person transferred onto that animal, and that carcass is burned on the altar. The blood is carried in. Prayers are made on the basis of the blood of that sacrifice. The Lord Jesus, in his death, he died as a priest with himself, his own body, being the actual sacrifice. And the amazing thing is that all the priesthood of Israel and all the offices of Israel priests was not just suspended, but finished, done with. And everything funnels now into the work of one person who offers himself as one sacrifice for all time, and he lays down his life as a priest. Now, it's this subject I want to preach to you about today, and I want to do it very simply. I want you to think of one very beautiful text for our communion table. Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. Just those four simple words. Christ died for us. The first thing is the person required to die. Christ. You know that his name means appointed one. He is the one that the Father covenanted with, contracted with from eternity. He appointed his own son to die, to become the sacrifice for sin. And I want you to think a little about the person of our Lord Jesus who became the sacrifice. Firstly, we know that he is a unique person. Amongst all the claims and ministry of prophets and priests of the Old Testament, and I'm speaking now of 4,000 years of history from Adam to Christ, never did a man claim to be the fulfillment of all sacrifices and of all offering to God. 
Never did someone point to himself and say, I am the Lamb of God. Never. Many came on the scene, no doubt claiming to be Christ's, but they were impostors. They lived their little day. They preached their little erroneous message. They died their dark, dismal death. But our Lord Jesus, as the unique person whose life and death could even take away all the guilt of all the sins of all the believing people in all the world, in all time, Jesus accepted the work as Redeemer and Savior of his people. Now, the Jews rightly asked, who can forgive sins but God? Jesus was God. He was God in the flesh. He proved it by his miracles. Uh, that's what con convinced Nicodemus. He said, no man uh, except he be come from God can do these miracles that you're doing. That's what convinced him. And his miracles proved his supernatural person. And we have in Christ a unique person. We also have in him a uni personality. Now, I'm using these terms because there's benefit in explaining them. We have in the Lord Jesus a unique person because he is God and man, but he's one person, uni-person. He's just one person. He was for eternal eternity the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But he took into his personhood the nature of man. And in the Lord Jesus, there's one person in two natures. Simply put, he is the God-man, absolutely unique. There's not another to challenge this title, this person of the Lord Jesus. And so everything that our Lord Jesus did in the flesh, he did it not just as human, but he did it in his uni-personality, God and man in one person. What he did in the flesh was perfectly human. But it also had the potency, the power of divine value. Let me read the statement by John Flavel on this. The human nature supplied what was necessary in kind. It gave the matter of the sacrifice. The divine nature stamped the dignity and value upon it, which made it in adequate compensation so that it was the act of the God-man. That's theology for you. You say, that's just words to me. What does it mean? It means when we speak of Jesus dying on the cross, it means that when he shed his blood, it was not just as a model telling the world how he could suffer in silence, how he could submit to difficult things. You know how sometimes we say, you know, you're going through tough things. Well, Jesus did more. He's the great example of how we should suffer and put up with things and so on. Now, some of that is a, is a motivation to us, but it's not the heart of how Christ died. It doesn't even touch the substance or the nature of Jesus' death. Nor did he die as a, a mere victim on that cross. There are so many theories that 
Jesus died on that cross because Romans got their hands on him. They were offended at him, and they put him to death, and he died there just as any other poured out his blood and died. That, of course, doesn't come anywhere close to the whole power of his nature. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, now think on these terms. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, when his blood was pouring out of his wounds from the the thorns crushed into his skull, his hands with the nails, his side, when the Roman spear pierced right in underneath the ribs and up into the heart through the sack of which flowed blood and water, Jesus was acting as a priest. It was priestly work. It was now the sacrifice of all sacrifices, with all the value of deity and divinity, with infinite value to make payment for all the sins of all the people who would ever believe and enter into covenant with God by the gospel. This sacrifice was unique. It was the sacrifice of the God-man. It was also as a mediator, because here is one now divinely equipped to mediate. Now, you know what a mediator does when there is some friction in the workplace. The the workers go on strike. The management, they try and keep things going. And somehow they've got to fix all the problems that have come up and the offense that have been made. And the workers won't go back to work unless this happens. And the management says no, and there's a blockage. How do you resolve this? Well, you bring in a mediator. And who can that mediator be? Well, it needs to be one whom the workers trust, and they've got confidence in him. It needs also to be someone whom the management trusts, and they have confidence in him. And his work to mediate is to reconcile, bring these two opposing parties together. When our Lord Jesus died on that cross, he died as a mediator because he was God infinitely holy, perfect. He was also man in our nature. He was, as we're told, tempted in all points as we are without sin. He knows what temptation is. He knows what it is to live in a world of sin. And he comes as the friend of sinners. And by his sacrifice, he is now the mediator to reconcile. And he says to the Father, I will take your commandment. I will die and bear the punishment, the price, to pay satisfied justice so that your law is no longer offended, that the claims of justice are satisfied. And I will die for men so that they have mercy. And on that cross, the Lord Jesus died as our priest, as our mediator. He died in that office as our man. He's our man. He was our man on the cross. He was our man when he came forth from the tomb. 
He was our man when he ascended into glory, when he poured out that blessing upon his own disciples. And he's our man now at the right hand of God. That's why when you pray, you use Jesus' name. That's why our prayers are made effectual by the mediation of Christ. A priest, his office work is two things. Satisfaction, sacrifice. Well, that's the same thing, those two. Satisfaction and sacrifice. So he may intercede. Just as the priest slew the animal, offered it on the altar, and brought the blood into the place of prayer. The priest interceded, pleaded with God. That blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat by the high priest. And sprinkling that blood, God was appeased and satisfied. And the work of atonement, reconciliation was made. All by the work of a priest. Jesus does that for us now. He is in the presence of God, at the right hand of God, and his blood. Think on this. We're going to take the cup to remember, remind us of that blood. We're going to take that cup with the red juice in it, and we're going to drink of that as a sign of our faith in the atoning blood of Jesus. And where is that blood now? It's in heaven. It's pleading. And Hebrews tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel had to learn that the way to heaven is by blood. We've had to learn that too, faith in the blood. And as we take that cup to demonstrate that faith, we are showing that our hope is in that blood that now appears in God's presence, and that intercession is made for us. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. I'm coming now to the segment on righteousness, exalt of the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And today we're going to look at the vice of gambling. William Secker listed one of the seven deadly sins as avarice, which by definition means the insatiable desire to get riches. One of the daughters of avarice, which the old writers used to mention, was gambling. And the need has not gone by for indicating the true place to which this vice belongs. The desire to make money is undoubtedly at the bottom of the practice. To make money in haste without giving any equivalent for it, and this is its condemnation, but after it has grown into a habit, it becomes a very complex thing. The gambler can hardly tell why he follows with such eagerness the events of the green turf and the fortunes of the green table, there is a fever in his blood which drives him on, rendering ordinary pursuits and ordinary gains steel and making his own heart reckless and hardened. A single act of gambling has an innocent look. The first steps in a gambling career are frequently exhilarating. But the atmosphere soon becomes grimy. The associations and companionships into which it leads are demoralizing, and many a time it ends in the dock and the jail. Gambling is a big problem in Canada. The reason is that provincial governments are the real addicts. The Ontario provincial government itself raked in more than a billion dollars last year from gambling. To do so, it has done everything it can to grow gambling. 
including licensing more casinos, allowing ATMs and unrestricted hours of operation in them, and increasing the number of video lottery terminals by five times. The result? The number of gamblers has soared. The Wellesley Institute of Ontario reported in 2013 that gambling is common in Ontario. The Canadian Community Health Survey shows that 66% of Ontarians have gambled within the last 12 months, and 85% of Canadians have gambled at some time in their lifetime. For most people, gambling does not significantly affect their lives and their well-being. Social, financial, and health problems arise, however, for problem gamblers. Problem gambling is often not well-defined in debates about gambling. This can lead to the assumption that unless the gambling is compulsive, it is healthy, responsible, and low-risk. Leading researchers have defined low-risk gambling as gambling no more than two to three times per month, spending less than a total of $500 to $1,000 per year, or gambling less than 1% of a gross family income. People who exceed one or more of these criteria can be described as problem gamblers. The Canadian Public Health Association defines problem gambling as a progressive disorder characterized by a continuous or periodic loss of control over gambling, b. preoccupation with gambling and money with which to gamble, c. irrational thinking, and d. continuation of the activity despite adverse consequences. In other words, you keep losing and yet you still keep playing. Now, the answer to the problem is to seek the true riches which are in Christ. The wonderful thing is that the insatiable greed of man is answered in the hope that comes through a living faith in Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ and have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in him. The poorest Christian is richer than the wealthiest oil sheik or the king of the vastest earthly kingdom. The Holy Spirit becomes our joy of heart. He ministers to us the fullness of contentment and satisfaction of which money is only a mocker. It's better to have a gospel-preaching church in the city than a gambling casino. It's better to have Christians living in the hope of Christ than gamblers robbing the vulnerable like vultures, damning their own souls in doing it. Judas warns us all to, of the true outcome of gambling. He traded 30 pieces of silver for his own soul. Let us be warned today not to enter into the gambling casino or any other form of gambling, but to put our trust in the Savior in whom there is no risk, but rather in whom is eternal life, abundant life. That's the confidence of the Christian. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to 
tbs.ca, CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast, and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our free Presbyterian church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the homepage of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 604-897-2040. The mailing address is 187 9058 Avenue, Surrey, BC, V3S1M6. We're located just two blocks north of Number 10 Highway on 188th Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5 a.m., 5 p.m., here on this station as we let the Bible speak. Music.